Hello and welcome to Hypot and Fuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the Mathematics and Physical Sciences faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I am completely unqualified to be here, but as always, very enthusiastic. With me is Sophie Lane, my excellent MAPS co-host, and our guest today is extremely qualified to be here. He's a professor of statistics and health economics, Gianluca Bio. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very enthusiastic as well. <laughs> well, we'll have That's what we like. We'll have the most enthusiastic podcast that <laughs> is actually possible to have. Uh, Gianluca, can you tell us a little bit about your area of research? What do you specialize in? So my main area, my main interest is in the application of statistical methods with specific um, objective of modeling healthcare uh, processes. So in fact, the easiest example I can think of is, um, you know, suppose there's a new drug uh, that is about to be put on the market, but the NHS um, has to check whether not only does the drug works, so it benefits the population, but also whether we can afford it through the taxation system and the Department of Health having a budget to deliver healthcare. So most of the work that we do is in the development of methodology as well as applications to model statistically the data available to test and assess whether the decision-making process should be, yes, let's put this drug on the market and pay for it so that it is available to people, or no, maybe we need to collect more evidence or maybe just just evidence that it wouldn't be cost-effective for us to buy it. That's really interesting. So did you start with just an interest in studying statistics and then what drew you to health? So um, my background is in statistics. I did my undergrads in statistics and my PhD in statistics from the University of Florence. And uh, then um, while working there, I started to be interested in, um, there's a stream in, in, ba- in, in, in statistical analysis, which is called Bayesian statistics, which is about making analysis in a fully probabilistic way. And I think the easiest way to present it is to just say that everything that you do observe you may have some kind of variation around it because maybe it's just the three of us given data rather than three other people in the world Uh, but what's crucial is that uh, things that you can never observe like uh, I don't know the proportion of female students at UCL these are things that are unknown and therefore you model them using some probabilistic modeling and uh, and that was sort of um, specialized me in the first place in in terms of statistical analysis. And when I was back in Florence, I started to apply this kind of theory and methodology to healthcare data. So what kind of things, apart from kind of, you know, a new drug that's coming out, what what kind of things are you actually modeling? Are you looking at human behavior in in that decision-making process or? No, not really. Specifically, what we usually have as kind of data are um, a combination of different sources. So we may have data coming from the trial that the drug company have done to prove that the drug is effective. And it doesn't have to be just drugs. It can be, uh, at UCL, we do a lot of behavioral interventions, for example, in mental health. So there's really no drug involved, but uh, to test whether some specific way of dealing with mental health patients have an effect uh, in comparison to some standard of care. So there's usually some trial data or some some study that has been done to, to, to see whether the drug works or the intervention works anyway. 
And then there's a combination of additional data sources which may come in the forms of registries or cost data from NHS use, for example. And the idea is to bring a big model where these things can be put all together and if we do account for the fact that they may be correlated, they may vary in, in, in a similar direction or in an opposite direction, but consistently. I'm imagining that you and, and your peers are probably hotly uh, chased after by people wanting NHS kind of, this is how we f- get more money or this is how we do this. Like, are you, Do you feel like what you do has a really big impact on, say, the National Health Service? Sometimes um, you do feel like that. There are, um, I think in our work, there's mainly two streams. There's one which is more methodological and as such you do work and you do methods and publish papers, but there's a kind of a lag in the time that they are picked up by the practitioners. Some other times the models that we do have a real impact on decision making. For example, we've done recently um, some work on um, human papillomavirus HPV vaccination and as a result of our work and other body of evidence, the Italian government has changed their regulation and expanded the vaccination program to cover both males and females, which was pretty cool. Do you do work in sort of different countries? Do you find it varies? Obviously, the UK has like a big centralised healthcare system. Is it how you work vary when you're in countries that maybe are a bit less like that? For now, being based in UK, it's it's a massive plus because, like you say, with the establishment of NICE back in the 90s, which is the institute that works for the um, Department of Health and um, recommends whether a drug should be um, should be put on the market and paid for by the government, this is kind of a model that um, many other countries and jurisdictions look up to. And so, uh, what the, the things that are established in the UK settings are kind of the golden rule in many other areas. Um, it does vary, though, because uh, different jurisdictions have different ways of adhering with kind of nice precepts in some sense. So uh, there are other countries around Europe where the expectation is that the analysis will be very much similar to what you would do for nice, and they accept that. In other jurisdictions, they do have different regulations in some sense. So they do want that as a backup, but I think, and I suppose that there's a, a lot more of deliberation and maybe informal discussion in some of the in some of the decision-making processes. We do work with the US as well sometimes, and they do have, of course, a completely different system. And uh, and there, there's uh, different methodologies that sometimes you need to apply. I can imagine their system's quite complicated. <laughs> well, sometimes the modeling is complicated. Sometimes you, you have to make it look more complex than it is, because otherwise you're not in demand, right? Um, but no, I think... Um, there's a tension and many of the practitioners tend to have an approach which is we do what we know how to do, um, but often that means using suboptimal routines, suboptimal software algorithms that are not quite right. So a big part of the work that we do, uh, not only at UCL, but I think we are kind of leading together with other colleagues in, in the UK mainly, is to try and tell people, look, there's a reason why we advocate that you do modeling in a proper way and that you account for all the issues that are in your data and in the the overall decision making process. So sometimes the modeling can get complicated and it is challenging to explain it and to justify to people who may think, but why do I need to do such a lengthy, complex model to to prove something that I know would work? The thing is you don't necessarily know. But do you come up do you come up against like quite a bit of opposition? I suppose a lot of people uh especially around things like should drugs be provided in the NHS, it must be quite an emotive subject and people have very strong opinions. Do you find it challenging to work with people perhaps when the answers you're coming up with aren't what they want? 
I think the most challenging part is to communicate clearly what it is that you're doing because there's lots of technicality and uh, some of that can be sort of brushed over and uh, you just say this is a technical aspect and you know it takes 10 hours to run this model for whatever reason but you have to still communicate very clearly what it is that you're doing what the assumptions are and uh, I think that is really important so it's, it's challenging sometimes but um, it's equally important and something that you have to be able to do. So what, what are you working on at the moment at UCL? We have a few different projects. So um, health economic evaluation is kind of my main area of research, but I do have general applications of Bayesian modeling to different things. So uh, we have a few projects which are more methodological on the development of suitable survival analysis kind of thing, kind of type models for, for economic, economic evaluation. What's uh, a survival type analysis? Is this the survival of the fittest in an economic sense? I knew it was coming. No, it's more <laughs> like when you have, this is particularly big in health economics because it has to do mainly with cancer drug trials. So survival is the main outcome. You have these patients who are really sick. And so it's unlikely that a drug will actually cure them for some types of cancers at least. So the, the, the best you can hope for is for them to not die for as long as possible, to, to, to keep them alive and in, in good health for as long as possible. It's the best all of us can hope for, really. Yeah, I guess so. So there, there's some work that we're doing in that, um, in that kind of area. And uh, another maybe more applied piece of work is in trying to estimate the demands in terms of psychosis disorders for various um, healthcare providers across the UK. So what other kinds of like generalised... Uh, things can you apply Bayesian, 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 Bayesian statistics to? Well, I, I might be biased here, but I think um, anything really, any, any, because effectively the idea of of Bayesian statistics is that you start your analysis by trying to formalize where you stand at the moment. What is your state of knowledge, and um, you you model that state of knowledge using some probabilistic assessment, and then you observe new data and you update your prior knowledge your existing knowledge into something that comes after you've seen the data and this is kind of an iterative process which which never ends and effectively you can do this with any kind of data and uh, we've done analysis for example on modeling um, um, election data so um, using uh, polls to try and predict uh, the actual outcome come, come, come election day uh, or, in fact, I think, um, weirdly enough, one of the, the, the things that um, I'm, I'm mostly proud of is, is some work that we've done uh, together with a colleague at Imperial College on um, assessing whether there's bias in the voting on the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, this is an area I'm very interested in because uh, I, I don't know if you know, but it's a weird fact that most Australians are weirdly obsessed with the Eurovision Song Contest and have even now become a part of it, <laughs> despite the fact that we are in a different hemisphere. Uh, can you can you tell us more about this particular project? I knew about Australia's obsession with it. I was interviewed by an Australian radio when they when they learned about the work that we've done and. That sounded like a crazy idea. For oh, we me. love it. With the, like, <laughs> honestly, it's like a party night. People just get dressed up, and I think it was basically a few years ago they were like, "If we give you a little bit of money, can we come and perform?" And now we're in it. Yeah. Uh, and every year I'm there yelling really loudly at the television. <laughs> so I think. Well, I should come up up, up a front so that my colleague at Imperial is actually my domestic boss which is polite 
phrasing to say my wife, I think. <laughs> um, and uh, growing up in Italy, we knew about the Eurovision Song Contest. I think Italy is one of the founding members as well. So technically, we are allowed to join in without having to, having to go through the semifinals. But for a long period of time, we haven't bothered. Um, so growing up, it was something that you knew about, but not like a big deal at all we wouldn't dream of having a party then when we moved here we started to see that actually people were having parties and and you know it got notice on newspapers and the media and then a few years back uh, there was uh, perhaps you remember there was a famous kind of incident and sir terry wogan who was the commentator for uh, for the bbc uh, essentially quit his job because he said that the, the, the whole system was rigged and uh, the UK would never win because uh, the other countries basically gang up against them and uh, they wouldn't vote for, for the UK's act. Now this was this was about 2008 wasn't it? I think so yes. Mm, and the UK hasn't won yet. No it's I'm been so, a while. <laughs> so I'm interested to see what your, your findings found. So well when we heard that basically we started to think okay fine that may well be but is there any evidence can we actually look at the data to see if there's a signal that suggests that yes, you know, consistently the other countries tend to score highly each other and, and actually score very lowly the UK entry. Um, so many of these data are, are actually freely available. You can go to the Eurovision con some contest website and there's information about all the different editions. And uh, we started to play around with that, mostly because you could do some kind of in a nerdy kind of way, interesting modeling and then try and bring in other variables that may explain the reasons uh, that the votes come in the way they do. So, for example, the migration stocks from one country to another or simply other factors depending on the, the, the perceived quality of the song or the characteristics of the songs anyway, like whether it's a, it's a female artist or a male artist or a group, whether they sing in English or their own language or even a made up language, which I think Belgium did in one particular occasion. Crazy uh, Belgians. <laughs> crazy Belgians, but good chocolate. Though, and oh, yes. Excellent. <laughs> and, um, and so we started to work on that and because it isn't the main area of research, it was kind of a like a side project. Then come um, when we came closer to the referendum, to the EU referendum, um, we saw that that was increasingly used um, as a signal, as something that was there uncritically. So I remember in May, I think normally the Eurovision contest is around May time and the referendum was in June, of course, and there was an interview on the radio with Nigel Farage who said uh, the question came up and uh, he probably said it as a throwing comment, but basically said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're never going to win the, the, the contest because it's another yet another sign that you know Europe is bad for us and we should just leave. Which may well be, uh, but again, is there any signal there? Is there any evidence? So we 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 decided let's let's just do this properly. And uh, and in effect, what we found is that there's no strong signal to justify any of that of, of these basically. So there are some cultural proximities. Some countries tend to like others more uh, more commonly, more more frequently. So for example, there's a there's a relatively a strong signal that Norway would tend to score highly Sweden consistently. Uh, but there's in fact no real signal that any country would score the UK's act with a zero vote consistently. It may happen, of course, it does happen, and it has happened for a long time that the UK hasn't won the contest. But there's no indication from the evidence, from the data, to suggest that this is because deliberately the other countries tend to score the UK consistently poorly. I wonder if this will change if, if there is in fact a Brexit. Mm. Well, around the time, oh, I think it was 2014, where there had been the, um, the, the war in, in, in Ukraine with the um, sort of partial invasion of, of Russia as well, 
there was ideas that perhaps the normal link between the former Soviet bloc and Russia would be kind of broken and uh, the, the, the points that these countries would score to Russia would be lower than in the past. And there was a little bit of that, but it wasn't a massive element. So again, that year Russia didn't win, but it wasn't because there was a strong element of, oh, we'll stop voting for you because you are the bad guys. So it may well be that the UK won't win the, uh, the Eurovision Song Contest for a long time. It may well be that they will win, uh, but I don't think that there's any sort of act of hating deliberately. So what you've discovered is that we're just bad at Eurovision. Or maybe you're good at Eurovision. You're not bad enough to actually win it. <laughs> the act is not ridiculous enough, perhaps. That We've, must be it. I mean, we're just very middle of, of the road. I'm saying, I'm saying we here as a dual UK and Australian citizen. I support both for Eurovision. Um, have you found any other kind of strange things that came out of Eurovision? Was there anything that you, when you did your models, you like, oh, I didn't expect that um i think a lot of what we've done um sort of return signals from the data and estimates that were sort of in line with with our expectations so for example there was an indication that singing in english would would tend to score you highly or more highly anyway and perhaps that's because particularly nowadays people tend to speak english across the world and europe in particular so maybe the song would be more relatable they would understand the lyrics uh, female acts would have a slightly increased chance of getting higher uh, votes or higher scores than group acts or, 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 or men-only acts. Um, but in general, like I said, we, we, we saw that effectively there's no strong signal from, from the data that we had. There wasn't a clear indication, yes, that's what wins you the Eurovision. Um, in fact, in the summer, we've done some more work together with Spotify. So they've given us some data on the metrics that they associate with the songs. So they have a huge data set and some of the data are freely available, some aren't, uh, on some characteristics of the songs in terms of how um, the, the beat per seconds or whether it's a very loud song or a quiet song, whether the, there's lots of lyrics or lower uh, amount of lyrics. And we try to correlate that with the points scored by the Eurovision Song Contests. And we're about to finish some of the preliminary work to try and determine whether we can have the perfect song to actually win the Eurovision Song Contest. Can we get a copy of those results and send it to whoever is in charge <laughs> of England's entry this year? I think there's a bit of pressure then, but yeah, we can try and do that once we're finished. <laughs> That'd be a real victory for UCL. You know, UCL research leads Britain to Eurovision win. We can claim massive ref impact case for the next yes, submission there. Exactly, that's what we want. That's. I think that would be the single most important piece of research to ever come out of UCL. <laughs> um, Nobel prizes will rain down <laughs> upon you. Is yeah. statistics like a fairly new field compared to other mathematics and physical sciences? To Compared to mathematics and, and physics, perhaps, yes. I think um, statistics has been established uh, in the 19th century, I think, uh, by and large. And uh, a lot of that has happened here at UCL. So UCL has the first ever established Department of Statistical Science in the world in an academic environment by Carl Pearson. 
who is one of the fathers and one of the founding fathers of statistics. He is the inventor of uh, much of the work around the correlation idea. So the fact that two variables may vary at the same time in a, in a consistent way. I've seen your antique bean machine that you have yes. in your department, um, which you can find a video on online, Google bean machine. When did that come from? Do you know a little bit about that? It was at the turn of the century, so early 19-something, 1910, I think. And what what was it illustrating? Cause it, and you, you use actual beans within it. <laughs> I think what they were doing is to try and figure out uh, the, the form of general population distribution. So when you start having large enough samples, then you would see that most of the features of this population would sort of cluster around some mean value, and then you have fringes at the at the extremes of this distribution. And, and these tend to be well represented by a mathematical formulation, which is called the normal distribution which is often assumed for to describe many phenomena like height or, or, or some other continuous measurements. All demonstrated effectively with beans. <laughs> if it can't be demonstrated effectively with beans, then I'm not convinced I want to know it. <laughs> so how do you think the field of statistic, especially, statistics, especially Bayesian, is evolving as we get more and more data? Like, Because, I mean, things we could, like, things like, like where cars are going and stuff, that's something we couldn't measure, like the route that cars are taking, something we couldn't measure like what, 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. now you, like pretty much all new cars have like little trackers in them and all this, like all these new things. How is that going to change the field of statistics? I think, well, in general, but in particular for Bayesian statistics, um, these are not new concepts. And in fact, the idea of Bayesian statistics kind of predates the actual establishment of statistics in some sense. Uh, the, the word Bayesian comes from Reverend Thomas Bayes, who's the guy who kind of published the first paper posthumously, and it was in 1763, I think, or something like that. So um, it, it's a very, old, a very old idea in some sense, the fact that you can have something that you think right now, and you kind of measure that, and then you observe new data, and you combine new data with your current judgment, and, and you obtain some updated judgment or, or posterior assessment of your probability of some events. This is an old idea. Uh, but up until the 90s, really, the development of Bayesian analysis was pretty much an academic exercise because there wasn't the, the necessary computer power to actually um, run realistic models. So you could do kind of toy examples. You can do simplifying assumptions to actually compute the, the quantities you, that, that you need for, for your analysis. But in the 90s, there's been a massive revolution because of the availability of computer power in a relative, re relatively cheap way and the establishment of algorithms. There's a whole class of they're called Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms, which basically allow, allow you to do any sort of model. You can think in terms of combining data and prior knowledge in a probabilistic way. And this has been a massive revolution and uh, it has allowed people to actually work on this model on any kind of area and there's Bayesian applications on healthcare, ecology, economics, um, social sciences. So it, it, it's really changed the field. And now I think more of that is coming in terms of having algorithms and, and computer power that allows you to deal with the increasingly larger, larger and larger uh, mass of data that we have. Do you think there are any risks around having so much data and being able to predict so many things. You know, for, you know, for example, people are inventing algorithms that they think can predict criminal behaviour from young, from people who are very young. And that, you know, a lot of people are very concerned about that. And even like your survival odds, do you think that, that there are some things that we maybe shouldn't 
try too hard to model. I think there's a general kind of risk in, in misinterpreting what statistics is about, I think. In, in my view, sometimes we, we, we tend to sell it, and maybe this is statisticians' fault as well, but we tend to sell it as we can prove statistically that A is blah. But really, I think what we can do is to, to try and estimate the uncertainty that we have around statements, probabilistic assessment of something. So we could be more or less uncertain that the drug will benefit the population or that um, specific characteristics will make you more likely to win the Eurovision Song Contest. We can never be sure, by and large, and the idea of using statistics is to try and restrict uncertainty as much as possible, but not only to restrict it, to account for it in a, in, in a reasonable and in a correct way and to report it to people so that we know where we stand. And going back, for example, to the main area of research that I have, um, the, the statistical modeling underpins the decision analysis. So we make some model to, 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 to describe uh, what the uncertainty in our inputs, so the, the things that we learned from the clinical trials, for example, impact on the actual decision-making process, which is should the NHS fund this drug or not? And we can never be sure that in the future we'll collect more data and actually the decision should be overturned because, in fact, we see more signal that points to the fact that actually it does you a bit of good, but there's lots of side effects. So in, in real practice, we should take the drug out of the market. But we don't know right now. So all we can do is make the decision with the best knowledge that we have, accounting for the fact that many of these inputs are, are actually uncertain. Bayesian logic is kind of involved in a lot of learning, though, isn't it? Is it, it something is. that is put into kind of machine learning? Are, are machines able to do this for themselves? I think a lot of the development of machine learning algorithms is kind of based on, on, on some sort of Bayesian reasoning because that's exactly what you do. So, for example, if you think in terms of Amazon or, or Google, the way that they try and guess what you like. And so if you look for a pair of whatever on Amazon, then you get adverts for similar items. Mm, I, I love that Amazon seems to think that because I've bought one heater, I want to fill my house <laughs> with heaters. <laughs> It's not even the core yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, yes, this is the start of your new hobby of collecting heaters. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think that this idea, I think, um, is, is, seems to me fairly straightforward and seems to me like the way we, we reason all the time. We try and see, as an Italian person, you move to the UK, the first day you just go out and you don't think of bringing an umbrella with you, and then it rains all over you, and then the next day you learn from experience and you try and think, should I bring an umbrella? And then eventually you forget about the umbrella anyway because it will rain irrespective. So, you know, you learn from your from your experience and that's a very Bayesian act to do. Um, in modeling terms, I think the challenge is that you have to formally incorporate in your analysis some level of subjectivity, the idea that you can model what you know right now. And what you know right now may be quite different from what I know right now. So the kind of danger, some, some, something that people don't really like sometimes, is that you and I can come up with different answers with the same observed evidence, simply because we start from very different perspectives. Um, which, again, it seems to me, though, something fairly reasonable, because I may be a very expert on something and you may be not expert. And so there's no reason why we should come up to the same conclusions given the perhaps limited evidence. A very simple way that I tried to understand this when I was doing some, some research is that if you had a, th a, a box that had balls in it and if you couldn't see what was in there and you picked out three balls and they were all red, you could infer that all the balls within that box were red. But another person who did the same thing but knew that some of them, the balls were actually blue, 
they would come up with different results because they had the different prior learning. Is that kind of the logic? That's exactly what it? it is. And also, in a purely Bayesian sense, you wouldn't think that things are either zero or one. You would always be tend to, uh, to, to associate some uncertainty with things. Because otherwise, if you didn't think that the moon was made of cheese, there's no amount of cheese that can be brought down from the moon that would convince you that the moon is made of cheese, if you think that there's no probability that that is a possibility. So, yeah. Yes! <laughs> I'm so proud of that. I was like, here's a, a, a stats problem that I always, what's it called? It's that famous one about how if you have three doors. The Monty Hall the problem. The Monty Hall problem. That's, is that related? Because that's when you, when you have any information, the probability exactly. changes. That's the same thing. Can, Can you exactly. go through that for me? Because I don't know what the Monty Hall problem so, is. So I think it relates to a, um, a TV show in the US back in the 50s or 60s, I don't know. And Monty Hall was the host of this show. And the idea was that you had um, three doors. Um, under a bit Behind one of these doors, there would be a prize. And uh, the other two doors would be one empty, and or maybe two, two of these doors would be empty. So there's the prize in, behind one of the doors, and the, others two, uh, the other two are, are empty. And you need to pick one in the first place. And then the host will show you one of the two other doors. And uh, presumably, they'll show you the empty door. Because if you had picked the one with the prize behind it, then the two, the other two will be will be empty. And if you had picked one which is empty, then one of the other two will be empty as well. And the host would know that. Then um, knowing that, knowing that the one of the other, hang on a minute. Uh, I can't remember if it was that you had two doors empty or one door is empty. And, no, I think you uh, have you have three doors and you've. I, You've got yeah, you've got one with a prize, two that are empty, and so you pick your door, mm. and then they show you another one, yeah. and that one's empty. So then you know, so you thought you had a one in three chance, and then you know that your chance changes. Yeah, basically your chance because... changes, and then it's whether you whether you should switch or whether you should stay. Yeah, and you should always switch because your odds are actually then better that it's the other door. Yes, right? it's something like that. I can't remember exactly. No. So Google was. it and then we can explain it. Yeah, in the beginning. that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely about. I think it is just one door um, has the price. In my one head, there's goats involved. Goats. Yeah, yeah one a, door has a goat. Yeah, like there's, there's a, a version of it with a goat and the a prize. I think. <laughs> yeah, so in, in some versions of it, when there's not a car, there's a goat. Yeah, shall I read it out? Yeah. yeah. Suppose you're in a game show and you're given the choice of three doors. Behind one door is a car, behind the other goats. You pick a door, say number one, and the host who knows what's behind the doors opens another door, say number three, which has a goat. He then says to you, do you want to pick door number two? And the question is, is it to your advantage to switch or to right, stay so with your, your choice? So your decision is to, to stick with the door that you don't know what is behind it, but you've gone from a one in three now to a one in two. And what I'm interpreting from this is that there's the possibility of getting a goat. So <laughs> everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, not if you really like cars. But the point is, having learned something more, effectively you revise your chances of winning. And then in this particular case, your, de your decision should be to, to switch to the other door because that would increase your chances of actually getting the prize. Unless you really like goats. Wait, uh, who doesn't really <laughs> like goats? Um, 
Well, we do have one more question that we that we ask all of our guests on Hypotenthuse, um, which is, who is your science hero? So that could be somebody who's inspired you uh, from the very beginning or somebody famous. Or a goat. It's not a goat, I'm afraid. Um, can yeah. I say two heroes? <laughs> of course. So the first one, I think, um, and, and interestingly enough, they're both related to UCL and, in fact, my department, the Department of Statistical Science. So the first one is Dennis Lindley who used to be the head of the department back in the 60s. And he was one of the most important um, Bayesian statisticians at the time. So uh, he was one of the main Bayesian statisticians back in the 50s when there were just three of them, really. And then in the 60s and in the 70s. And he has been instrumental in establishing the Bayesian field. Um, and I think at the time it was a, a, like a brutal environment and they had real fights between Bayesian and non-Bayesian statisticians, which luckily is something that we don't have. People feel really strongly about their persuasion in terms of statistics, but now I think there's not an element of that fighting anymore, which I think is a very healthy and good thing. Back then, um, I think you'd hear a story of departments who would never hire a Bayesian statistician because their persuasion was non-Bayesian and departments who would tend to hire Bayesian statisticians because... That's where they were inclined. But in addition to that and the kind of uh, fight that he put to establish the, the, the philosophy of, of Bayesian statistics, I, I, I started reading him when I was a bit kind of older in the process of learning my statistics. But I've admired massively his, um, the ability he had to write incredibly technical papers, very dense with mathematics and very clear nonetheless, with dissemination work which would explain very complex ideas in a very, very simple way. And the other hero is Phil David, who used to be professor of statistics in our department. And uh, I think he did his PhD with Dennis Lindley at UCL. And he's been my first boss at UCL. And uh, um, I kind of got to read his papers while I was doing my PhD in Italy. And at some point, I, I kind of stumbled upon something. I couldn't figure out what he was proving in one of his papers. And surely I was wrong. He had, hadn't made a mistake. So um, after discussion with my supervisor in Florence and other PhD students, I decided, OK, I'll send him an email and he'll ship me down because obviously I'm missing something obvious here. And uh, I wasn't even expecting a response. But in fact, two days later, he came back with a lengthy email uh, thanking me for having found a mistake in the paper. He also made the point that actually my conclusion was wrong. So he wasn't completely wrong, which is fair enough. Uh, but then we start to talk and um, by email and, uh, and then when I moved to London I actually got a job with him and in the three years I worked with him I learned an incredible amount of statistics and, and philosophy and it was the best first boss to have in your real first job. That's wonderful and what a lovely pair of science heroes you have. Unfortunately that is all we have time for today though um, but join us next time on a high pot enthuse for more maps chat.